Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad that you're joining us this week. And we're excited to share this case that Christy has. I'm actually really excited. I found this case so interesting. Christy's got me totally intrigued because she says she's doing something different than she normally does. So I'm already having trouble containing my excitement and trying to guess what it is going to (laughs) be. Well, I have a question to start it out with. So the first question that I have, I guess I have a couple of questions, but my first one is... Have you ever thought of what it would be like to live in a haunted house? Yes, that would be horrifying. (laughs) I have nightmares all the time about that. Yeah, it would be totally terrifying. (gasps) Oh, but remember that locked room that we are going to make at your dad's haunted farm? It's not actually haunted. (laughs) Totally is. (laughs) Yeah, stay tuned. That still might happen. (laughs) It would be the most awesome thing ever. An overnight locked room adventure. Yeah, we have it all planned. We just need the... (laughs) Time is probably what it is really to be able to do that. For some of you that don't know us, that's what Christy and I used to do. Yeah, we created escape rooms and they were so fun. And we still like to go to them often. We just actually went to one last week. It is an awesome pastime. Yeah. And we nailed it. Yeah. We got out with like seven minutes left. (laughs) Yeah, yes. But if you haven't tried an escape room, you totally should. So fun. They are so much fun. Yeah. But back to my next question now. Okay, next question. (laughs) Okay. So my first one was about what it would be like to live in a haunted house. So my next question is, do you think houses can be haunted or is that just for the movies? Oh, I don't know. Because the intellectual part of me says, no, that's ridiculous. But then the me that has to drive home at night by myself says, yes, it's totally possible. (laughs) Well, the correct answer is both. It's It's always both. And now I think I know how you'll answer this next question, but would you ever go to a well-known haunted house like the Lizzie Borden house and spend the night just for fun? Are you going to be with me? That's not part of the question. (laughs) Of course I'm going to be with you. (laughs) Okay, then I'll go. Okay. (laughs) If you're going, I'll go. (laughs) Partners in crime. (laughs) That's what I thought you'd say. Not by myself. (laughs) If I go, you have to go. (laughs) I have a hard enough time driving home in the dark by myself. It's true. We are recording later tonight, but I'm going to drive Melissa home. She'll be okay. Not much of a wimp. (laughs) And we'll see if I get scared coming home from your house. I'll just put on a true crime podcast and I'll be okay. (laughs) Well, I feel like today's case might creep you out a little bit. Because today's story involves a quote unquote haunted house that ends up having a more sinister and in my opinion, a more terrifying explanation. Oh, no. Our dirtbag today ends up hiding in the attic of our victim's home without them knowing for nine whole months. What? Yes. Oh, that is creepy. (laughs) Right? And I was thinking like in my house, we sometimes have some strange happenings going on in our house. And after researching this case, I might be checking all of the nooks and crannies to be sure we don't have an unknown house guest. Oh, now I'm totally freaked out because our basement is huge. Yours is and creepier than mine. (laughs) Yes. But surprisingly, this is not the only occurrence of someone living in someone else's home without them knowing. Oh, there's like a whole lifestyle, squatters. Squatters are often, though, like vacant places, right, Mm -hmm. that they kind of overtake. But the part that I'm doing different for this case is that if you stick around to the end, I have a few wild instances that I'm going to share with you, kind of like a little bonus content. Of people that have lived in people's houses while they're living in them? Yes, What? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you about this case. And then if you stick around to the end, I have this little bonus content with more instances where this happens. No way. Yes. It happens more often than you would think. That's a creepy thought. It really is. Like what a violation. Now I'm going to be totally freaked out. Like a peeping Tom creeps me out. Yeah. But actually living in your house with you? In your home without you knowing. But right before we dive into the case... I want to give a quick shout out to one of our amazing listeners for suggesting this case. I actually hadn't heard about it until our listener, Megan, messaged us about it. So thanks, Megan. And thank you to all the other listeners who continue to send us suggestions. We can't guarantee that we will cover each case, but we do appreciate you taking the time to send them to us. And we do look into everyone. We do. 
Absolutely. So are you ready to get into this? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Our creepy squatter, Theodore Edward Conies, was born in Petersburg, Illinois, on November 2nd, 1882. Oh, this is an oldie. Yeah, this is like 140 years ago. Okay, so it probably doesn't happen anymore then. No, it does. Because some of the ones that I'm going to tell you about later are current. Oh. But this isn't actually our oldest birth date of a killer that we have covered so far on Buried Motives. Nope, it's not. Nope. Val Gunnis was born in 1859, and Melissa did a really great job covering that case. If you haven't listened to it and like old-timey cases, you might want to check that one out. It's been one of my favorite ones to cover. It was awesome. I wanted to note that you will find birth date discrepancies for this case, but according to Ancestry and Grave Finding Sites, he was born on November 2nd. It's probably one of those cases where they got registered on a different day than they were actually born. Right. Theodore's father was Thomas H. Conies. He was born in Cavan, Ireland, but immigrated to Canada and then at some point moved to Petersburg, Illinois in the United States. He was a hardworking man who started his own hardware store to support his family. He was 37 when Theodore was born. And I thought that's really simpler times when you could just open a little corner store and support your family. It painted a nice picture for me. Mm. 37's old to have a kid, though. It is. times. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second, actually. (laughs) Theodore's mother was Isabella Elam. She was born in Petersburg, Illinois in 1851. She married Thomas on October 1st, 1873, and was 31 years old when Theodore was born. Oh, these are both older parents. They are. And I actually just have in here that both of his parents were older to have a child for that time, given that Theodore was born five years into their marriage and they never had any other children. So I'm guessing that maybe they had some fertility issues. Mm -hmm. Theodore's father, Thomas, died in 1888 when Theodore would have been close to six years old. Isabella moved with her young son to a farm near Beloit, Wisconsin. In 1907, they moved to Denver, Colorado, so she could support them by working as a housekeeper at the Denver Democratic Club. Isabella died only a few years later in 1911. Oh. She had been scammed out of her life savings and therefore had nothing to leave to her son. So he's a destitute orphan. Yes, but by this time now he is older. Okay. As a child, Theodore was quite sickly. He was small and frail growing up. Doctors told his parents that he likely wouldn't live to see 18. Oh. Because of this, he dropped out of school and didn't graduate. I guess they figured if he was going to die as a child, why waste time in school? What else was he going to do, though? I don't know. But ironically, Theodore would live to be 84 years old. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this really does play a part in how this case unfolds. I think this is an important part of the case. How would that not affect how you live your life? If you thought that you were never going to live to old age, it would totally change your choices. Yeah. You don't even think you're going to live to be 18. Mm Mm-hmm. Because every doctor that Isabella ever took Theodore to told her the exact same thing, that he wouldn't live to be an adult, she was very overprotective of him, not letting him play sports or even work. I couldn't find anything that suggested that he had many friends or a girlfriend ever in his life, which is a lonely way to live. Mm -hmm. So he kind of was living in this bubble growing up. She wouldn't allow him to play with any other kids? Nothing that would be too rough because he was so small and he was so weak and frail and she thought he was dying. And what was his diagnosis that they thought he wouldn't live past 18? I couldn't find any medical reports. It just had said that multiple doctors told her the same thing. So then she would believe it. It wasn't just one doctor. Yeah. I'm impressed that even that they went to multiple doctors. Yeah, me too. But she lived in multiple cities. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. This decision, along with the things going on in the world during his life, made it hard for Theodore to support himself. He lived through the Great Depression and both world wars. Because of this, poverty is the main motivator for today's killing, not things that we often see like an abusive childhood. And that's where I say this plays a significant role. Mm -hmm. The only job I could find that he held was as a bookkeeper at the Denver Brass Works. I'm not sure how long he was able to work there, as it is reported that he was homeless most of his life. So was he homeless because his health wouldn't allow him to stay at a job? Or was he homeless because that was just kind of the mentality that he developed as an adult? It's hard to say. I know that he was quite sickly even as an adult, but he had never been taught how to work or hold down a job. He just lived in this bubble. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm questioning, is it actually his health that's keeping him from working or is it his upbringing? It's both. Okay. It's always both. It's always both. (laughs) He did travel to a few different cities and different states living mostly under bridges or in the city's alleyways. That's a rough lifestyle. Mm -hmm. As an adult, 
Theodore hated that people treated him differently because of his frail condition and continued poor health. And he resented those who were living happy, healthy lives. He was almost six feet tall and around 120 pounds. Ooh, that is slight. Mm-hmm. He once said that he wished he had a place where he could be all alone and not be judged by those around him. The only friend that was significant in Theodore's life was a man he met named Philip Peters. Philip was a few years older than him, and they both shared a love for music. They would hang out at a club to listen to and participate in live music together. Philip would often invite Theodore to come to his house to hang out or have dinner with him and his wife. So let's take a brief moment and I'll share with you a little bit about Philip. Philip was born in 1868. He started his career at the railroad in 1899 at the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. He lived with his wife Helen in a nice bungalow at 3335 West Moncrief Place, a house that they would live in for over 50 years. The young couple raised a family together and were happily married. Philip was a musician and a member of the Denver Guitar Club. Philip and Helen both gave guitar and mandolin lessons. This is where Philip and Theodore met. Like I said, they hung out for a while, but they eventually did lose touch. Some years later, they bumped into one another. Being the nice guy that Philip was, he invited Theodore to his house to have dinner with his family. Theodore told Philip about his mother slowly dying and how she had been schemed out of their money. Some men had convinced her to sell her house and invest in a mine. Once she did, the slimy dirtbags took off with all of her money. Theodore said he was trying to take care of his mom financially. And I think this is when he had tried to work. Mm -hmm. Philip and Theodore ran into one another again in 1912, after Theodore's mother had passed away, but then again quickly lost touch after both of these brief encounters. Philip knew about Theodore's hardships growing up his inability to hold down a job, his ailing health, his mom not letting him do regular kids stuff like play sports, and how bad others made Theodore feel when they teased him. Philip was a kind man and always showed him respect. By 1941, 73-year-old Philip had already retired from his career as a railroad auditor. Philip and Helen's children had all grown up and moved out of the house, allowing them to live a quiet life with one another. Oh no. Oh no is right, because... Unfortunately, in the fall of 1941, Helen had fallen and broken her hip. She needed to be admitted to the hospital until her hip healed. With this being the early 40s, men were often not accustomed to performing domestic chores. So Philip's neighbors tried to help him by inviting him over for warm meals each night while his wife recovered, likely sending him home with leftovers for lunch as well. Mm -hmm. How much younger is Theodore than Philip? They're like 14 years apart. Okay. So that's why when he first met Theodore at the music club, Theodore mm -hmm. was just a teenager. Right. And Philip was already married, settling down in a totally different stage. Okay. Yeah. And so he kind of looked over him as like a big brother kind of figure. Could have. Kind of took him under his wing. He was just a kind man. Exactly. Staying in the year 1941, we are now going to jump back to what was happening with Theodore at this time. He was now almost 59 years old. He was still homeless and unemployed. It was September, and winter would soon be approaching. According to Google, Denver can get down to an average of minus 7 degrees Celsius, which is about 8 degrees Fahrenheit, in the winter months. Theodore decided that he needed to ask someone for help. He was likely dreading the cold weather that he knew would be coming soon. I couldn't even imagine being that age and then having to live outside in the winter. Yeah, and most of your life. Yeah. Like ever since his mom passed away, it sounds like. Yeah, that sounds awful. Theodore remembered the nice man that he had met while he was just a teenage boy and decided to go see Philip to ask for some money and help. The tragic thing is, I believe Philip would have happily helped. Oh, yeah. If his past actions are any indication, it sounds like he was a pretty helpful guy. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he doesn't even get that opportunity. What? When Theodore knocked on the familiar door, there was no answer. Rumor is that Philip was at the hospital visiting Helen as she was healing from her broken hip. Theodore made the split decision to enter his friend's home to rummage for cash and food to steal instead. Oh, dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Denver was a safe town in the 1940s, and so Philip had left the door unlocked. So there would have been no sign of a break-in. Nope. While going through their stuff, Theodore discovered a tiny trap door in the ceiling of a closet. The opening led to a tiny cubby hole in the attic. The door opening was only 8 by 15 inches in size. So that's like 20 by 38 centimeters. And I don't know about our listeners, but for me, these hips would not be fitting into an opening that small. 
Mine neither. I took out my tape measure to look and it's honestly not much longer than a piece of regular paper. That's how small this tiny little opening was. And so his size for once paid off. Right. Because he was so thin from his illness, he could fit through the little trap door. The cubby itself was only 27 inches high. So that's just over two feet or 68 centimeters and 57 inches wide which is under five feet or 144 centimeters. Theodore, remember, was nearly six feet tall, but he managed to fit in this cubby. For how long? Nine months? For nine months. No, he had to go in and out. Well, he does go in and out or he died (laughs) staying in the cubby. (laughs) But this is where he lives most of his time. Like that's where he sleeps in that cramped little box. Yeah, two feet tall. Like I felt like it was like an undersized coffin. Honestly, like I feel claustrophobic just imagining it. That's crazy. Yeah. And plus, remember, he was almost 60 years old. How agile was he? I don't know. Living out in the cold. How did he not have like arthritis and everything else that older people get? Well, he already was sickly. He already had all these things going on with him, which followed him into his adulthood. So I'm really not sure. How do you fit into a hole that's almost the size of a piece of paper as a grown adult? And to do it over and over again, because he stays there, you said, for nine months. Nine months. He lives in this tiny little cubbyhole, little box, tiny space. That is crazy. You know, in a cartoon, when a character suddenly gets an idea and a light bulb illuminates over their head, this is kind of what I imagined. Because for whatever reason, Theodore got the not-so-bright idea to begin living inside this tiny box of a space. Like, I can't imagine him being in that house, seeing this tiny little thing and thinking, oh, I could live there. Warmth is a motivating factor, though. It is. And being homeless for so many years had caused Theodore to lose a substantial amount of weight. And so he was able to easily get in and out of the cupboard. He later said that he felt like his frail body would not survive one more winter. He slept better in the cubby than he did out on the street. He was happy to have a place to exist all by himself, away from the ridicule of others. Theodore remembered hearing Philip come home that day, but decided to just stay in the cupboard rather than pop out of a closet and have to explain to him why he was inside their house. He later said, quote, I thought this attic would be my shelter during the oncoming winter. And to me, this indicates that Theodore planned to just live at the Peters' house for as long as he possibly could. Mm-hmm. Days passed and Theodore did his best to stay as quiet as possible when Philip was home. So he would just lay there quietly. When he would go out, mainly to visit Helen, Theodore would sneak into the rest of the house and eat the food scraps and use the washroom. Because of Philip's age, he no longer could hear as well as he used to, so Theodore was easily able to go undetected. That's so freaky. Mm Mm-hmm. Theodore later admitted that after a while, he started to get a little bored, so he began sneaking around the house following Peter. What? Yes. (laughs) No. Yeah. Oh, dear. (laughs) Theodore was quoted saying, quote, Whenever I heard him downstairs, I kept real still. Then I got bolder and used to shadow him from room to room. It was sort of a game. It gave me a thrill. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had anyone at my mercy, but I didn't want to hurt him. Voyagerism. So creepy. So creepy. Voyagerism is often that first step, right? Yeah. Gross. (laughs) I've got chills running up and down my back now. Yeah, just for fun, because Philip can't hear very well, and so it was easy to kind of follow him around the house. I can't imagine a 59-year-old man doing this. I know, but can you imagine you're living in this little box of a coffin thing most of the day? Like, this would be your only fun. Mm -hmm. You're not leaving the house. Theodore said it sometimes got cold in the cubby, but it was far better than how cold he'd be if he were living on the street. Theodore managed to stay hidden for a total of five weeks leading up to the unfortunate night of October 17th, 1941, the day that Philip would be violently murdered by his dirtbag squatter. On this particular night, Theodore made a deadly miscalculation. He thought that Philip had left to go have his nightly dinner at the neighbor's house. Thinking he had free reign of the house, he climbed down from his tiny crawl space of a room to steal something to eat. And I can just picture Philip in the house having no idea what was about to happen. At this point, Theodore, I guess, didn't even know what was about to transpire. Theodore freely walked into the empty kitchen and started to rummage through the icebox, which is a refrigerator, to find something to eat. Philip must have heard this as he entered the kitchen and saw a strange man standing at his open fridge. 
Likely thinking someone had just broken in, Philip smacked Theodore from behind with his cane. He had no idea who he was hitting. Because this is from behind. Yeah, it would be such a shock. Yeah. Theodore said, quote, Peters didn't recognize me, though. I guess I've changed a lot in 30 years. And as if he'd expect to actually know the stranger who was suddenly appearing in his kitchen. And his adrenal response was obviously to fight. Mm -hmm. Theodore reacted by grabbing something close to him to use as a weapon. He grabbed a heavy iron stove shaker and began beating one of the only men to ever show him kindness to death. Once Philip was clearly dead, Theodore raced back to the attic cubbyhole to hide. Theodore later told police that it was a split-second decision to kill Philip. I totally believe that hitting him the first time was a split-second decision. But why didn't he stop? Yeah, he could have stopped and ran out of the house. But that would have been a real fright for Theodore, too. He thought he was alone in the house. He thought Philip had left. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Philip had fallen asleep on the couch, so it was really quiet. What happens next? He stays there for nine months. He stays for nine months, yeah. So another seven and a half months, he's still got to go. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, as Philip lay dead on his floor, his neighbor, Jenny Ross, was growing worried about why he hadn't shown up yet for dinner. He wasn't usually late. After waiting a while for him, Jenny decided to go and make sure Philip was okay. Because he was getting older, she was worried that maybe he had fallen and needed some help. Jenny knocked on the door, but no one answered. All the windows and doors were locked. Jenny grew more concerned, so she grabbed another neighbor, Mrs. Burke, to help her investigate what was going on. Wait, all the doors and the windows were locked while he was at home, but when he left home, he didn't lock his windows and his doors? Yeah, they were all locked this time. Okay. I wonder if he was starting to have that kind of sixth sense that there was somebody around, and that's why he started locking them. Oh, that's a good point. Because why would you change your habits? Yeah. Good insight, Melissa. I never even thought of that. But you're likely right. He probably started to feel a little paranoid. Well, food's going missing. He probably thought somebody's coming in his house, Mm -hmm. which would explain his more fight reaction than to flee. True. If you had been building up in your head that somebody was in your home when you were away, you would start to get angry and that would bring on a more fight response. That's true. I didn't find any reports of him saying that to anyone, but also in that time, you're a grown man. In the 40s, you're not going to be telling anyone that you're scared. No. Yeah, that's a good point. Which makes this even more sad that he was feeling that way leading up to his murder. Yeah. And normally Helen was home, but Helen was in the hospital. So he knew that any sounds or anything that he would have heard wasn't her. Because sometimes you can just assume, oh, it's someone in the next room. Mm -hmm. So does that mean it's easier for a squatter to live in a house with a lot of people? Oh, I would think so. But then you also have more chance of being caught. That's right. And less chance of the house being all empty at one time. That is true. So the two neighbors go over there to investigate together. Mrs. Burke was able to crawl through the porch screen to get in and unlock the door. She discovered a grisly scene once inside. Philip's lifeless body was laying in a pool of blood. The neighbors called the police, who responded quickly and arrived at the scene shortly after the call. Blood evidence suggested that there had been a real struggle between the killer and Philip Peters. Lacerations to Philip's arms, as well as a ripped-off fingernail, also suggested that he had tried to protect himself. The murder was considered overkill. Philip had over a dozen fractures to his skull and multiple injuries across his body. Evidence showed that many of Philip's wounds were sustained even after death, so Theodore just kept violently beating his dead body after murdering him for an estimated total of 37 times. He just couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. Police were confused about how the attacker got in or back out of the house. Everything was locked up from the inside. The key was still in the lock on the inside of the front door, and there was a chain that could only be secured from the inside. The back door was locked, along with all the windows. The only sign of forced entry was the damaged screen caused by the neighbor when she entered the home. So they're going to do a thorough search of the home, right? They do. No money or items appeared to be missing. Money and a watch were still laying out in the open on the bedroom dresser, ruling out robbery as a motive. Police found two cast iron shakers in the kitchen. One was very dusty, and the other one, which is our murder weapon, had clearly just been washed. They also found blood on a nearby towel, assumed to have been used to clean up the murder weapon. Nobody reported seeing anyone suspicious in the area, leading up to or after the murder. Well, nobody was looking five and a half weeks ago. Exactly. So police were rightfully stumped. The killer seemed to appear and then magically disappear without a trace. Little did they know that the ruthless dirtbag who had taken Philip's life was still inside the house with them, laying as still as he possibly could. And poor Philip's wife. 
She's in the hospital recovering, and then she gets this news of her husband's death. Mm-hmm. Officers saw the trapdoor in the closet ceiling, but figured no person would be humanly able to enter that small of an opening, so they didn't look inside. Oh, no. I read in one report that they did try to lift it, but Theodore was sitting on it, and they couldn't open it, and they thought, ah, oh, no one could even get in there. Philip's wife, Helen, had to be informed while she was in the hospital that her loving husband of decades and the devoted father of her children had been viciously murdered inside their home while she was recovering. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. And is she going to go back to that home now? She does. Eventually, Helen had to come home to an empty house, or so she thought. Theodore was still living in the attic cubby. Not long after returning home, Helen sustained another hip injury, and there are conflicting reports if she went back to the hospital or not, or if it was the same hip. Regardless, once back home, Helen hired a friend as a housekeeper to live in the house with her and help her with regular household chores. Both Helen and her housekeeper started to hear weird noises around the house that they couldn't explain. They began to believe that the house was haunted. Well, yeah, because your husband just died in it. Yeah. You would totally believe that right? it was haunted. That's literally what I have written. Can <laughs> you blame them? After Philip had been brutally murdered there. No. You would already be creeped out about coming back to the house. I'm surprised you went back. Mm-hmm. The two ladies started to notice weird things happening around the house. Food would go missing. The strange sounds continued. And things would be moved out of place. This really freaked out Helen's friend, causing her to quit. She was like, nope, sorry, I'm out of here. And you can't really blame her. No. But they're not thinking that someone's in the house. They're thinking it's haunted. But take Helen with her. Right. Instead, Helen hired other housekeepers, but they were also driven to flee the home. How many housekeepers did she go through? A couple. One time, one of the housekeepers saw a white hand coming around an open door. <gasps> when she screamed, she heard footsteps running away but then couldn't find anyone. So she was convinced that they were dealing with a demon. That would be so freaky. Right? Because he would be so pale too for living in the attic. And in the dark all the time. Yeah. And so she just saw this really thin white hand come around the door. And he would have been all bony and yes. wrinkled. Oh, man. <laughs> so you can see why they're thinking this is haunted. Helen later told the Denver Post that she also saw things like doors opening once also seeing a pale hand and a foot appear around the door and then retreating once she screamed. The Peters' home was starting to get a reputation for being haunted, and Helen had a hard time finding more help. People were scared to even walk by the haunted house where an unsolved murder had taken place. Okay, she needs to leave her house. <laughs> Police investigated, but never found anyone in the house. They even camped out at the house for two days and nights, not finding anything suspicious. Where did he go pee in that time? In the cubby. I guess he would have had a system set up because he would have never known when he had time to go down to the yeah. bathroom. We'll talk about it after, but it is not a clean place. People continued to report ghost sightings of a tattered, frail man standing by the stairs or peering out the window. Helen was eventually unsettled as well, and at the persuasion of her son, she decided to finally leave her home of 52 years and go live with her son in Grand Junction. Good choice. Mm -hmm. But what a tough cookie Helen was. But this was her home of 52 years. She probably never thought she would move. I wouldn't even have returned. <laughs> she was much braver than I am. She was a brave lady. Now that the house was vacant, Theodore began living his best life. He could freely move around the home, totally isolated from the world. This was his dream. Okay, but wouldn't he be seen in like windows and doors and stuff like that? Yep, and that's my next line. <laughs> <laughs> Neighbors began to notice strange things happening, like the lights going on and off throughout the day and the blinds moving position, solidifying their beliefs that a haunting was to blame. The whole town now is believing that this is a haunted house. So they call in the exorcist. They don't. <laughs> the local priest. <laughs> they don't, actually. Really? The police. The police keep investigating. Okay. <laughs> Others reported hearing sounds and noticing foul smells coming from the house. Some even reported seeing a ghostly white face looking out the window. Police continued to monitor the house, sometimes staking it out from across the street. After a few weeks of nothing happening, they dropped down to only checking in on it periodically. The house stayed vacant, with Theodore causing concern about hauntings for months. He got to just live there after brutally murdering one of the owners and scaring away the other owner. His friends that had been nice to him. Right. 
he had mastered quickly hiding in his hole when anyone would come by to investigate. Like he could get up there quick. Which is impressive for his age to be so agile. Yeah. During a routine check on July 30th, 1942, police officers Roy Bloxham and William Jackson were parked across the street to watch the house for a while. The mail carrier, all of a sudden, jumped back as he passed by the house. He thought he saw a ghost inside, a pale face between the curtains. Oh, man. So creepy. Yeah, apparently he, like, threw his mail. Like, it totally scared him. <laughs> because you're knowing that this house is haunted, and you would totally think it's a ghost. Yep. You would. Because this white face peering through the curtains. This frail, bony white face. Yeah. I would have peed my pants. and I would have just <laughs> dropped the mail. <laughs> The officers, because they were right across the street, they rushed over and entered the home. When inside, they heard what sounded like a lock click on the second floor. An officer bolted up the stairs just in time to see a leg hanging out of the tiny trap door in the closet ceiling. Imagine his shock. He's a police officer, so he's going to be brave and he would go investigate. I would run the other way and be like, ah, it is a ghost. I would have been like, oh, crap. (laughs) Because you want to find something, but you don't want to find something at the same time. Who gets to open that hatch? Right. Which one's brave enough? Well, the officer was so brave and he was able to grab Theodore's leg before he could get fully into the cubbyhole. He was like, "Mm -mm, grab that leg. Well, I guess he's close enough that he can see it's actually not a ghost. (laughs) That's true. I would still be nervous to grab that leg. (laughs) Theodore was pulled down from the ceiling and immediately taken into police custody. It was noted that Theodore was extremely pale and weak. His clothes were all tattered and disgustingly dirty. They were like rotting off his body. He had all this time in this house to himself. Couldn't he have fit in any of Philip's clothes? It sounded like he likely never had changed his clothes. Oh. And his tall frame had withered to only 75 pounds. Oh, wow. It looked like bones protruding out of skin. That is seriously emaciated. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he couldn't go out to get food. He literally was like a prisoner inside this house. Once Helen moved out, there was no new food coming in. And she probably took all their pantry items with her. Probably. So I don't even know what he was eating. It was also noted that his hair and beard were long and tangled. He was so weak that he fainted when they first pulled him out of the hole above. How did he even get up there in the first place? I don't know. It's amazing, really. And why was he still living up there? Why didn't he take one of the beds? Well, maybe he was. But the police would do routine checks, so maybe he thought, if I'm sleeping, I better be up there. Maybe. Later, Officer James Childers said about Theodore's appearance, he was, quote, the strangest looking human I have ever seen. His hair hung low over his ears, and his skin was the ugly, unwashed gray of an overcast sky. Ooh, that's a good description. That was. Why wouldn't he get industrious and actually make his cubby bigger? Because he's a 75-pound 60-year-old at this point? At this point, he's been in there for months and months all by himself. You'd think he would show some initiative to make his living circumstances better. But he had never really worked, ever in his life. Would he even know how to do that? Yeah, I guess. You would have more carpenter skills than Theodore would have. But this is how he was raised. He was raised that he's going to die. He's probably thinking, I'm going to die any day. I think he kind of believed that his whole life. I wonder if he got cheap thrills off of scaring people, peeking through the curtains. Well, I think he did. Because he said that gave him a thrill when he would follow Philip around that house. Mm -hmm. I would laugh if I made the mail carrier drop his mail. My poor kids. I do like to scare. (laughs) Yes, she does. (laughs) But I grew up getting scared. So (laughs) it's family tradition at this point. Unable to explain himself and after first denying it, Theodore did confess to killing Philip Peters. He also admitted to living in the attic crawl space for over nine months without the Peters knowing or having their permission. Theodore told police that after murdering Philip, he was scared to come back downstairs. He said, quote, I did not eat for days, but I lived. I was afraid to go because I knew I'd killed a man. So after that, he just stayed up there for quite a long time. Well, yeah, there would be so much activity in the house. Yeah. The Denver police force sent one of their smallest officers and this poor guy. They were like, you're the smallest. You got to go up there. (laughs) Fred Zarno had to inspect the cubby. It was almost nest like. Theodore had made a bed out of an old ironing board and ripped up magazines. Apparently, Theodore had not showered since being in the home, and much of his human waste was lined up inside cans along the back wall of the cubby. No. The smell was so foul that it made the investigating officer vomit. Oh, that's gross. 
Officer Zarno later said, quote, a man would have to be a spider to stand it long up there. Once the media got a hold of this statement, Theodore Coney's was forever dubbed the Denver Spider-Man. Judge Johnson ordered that Theodore be examined by a psychiatrist. He was found to be legally sane and therefore competent to stand trial before a jury. He had confessed, so I am unsure why there was a need for a trial, but maybe things were done differently in 1942. The first trial date was postponed when Theodore fell ill with pneumonia and had to be sent to the Denver General Hospital. After eventually being tried in court, Theodore was found guilty of Philip Peters' murder. In October of 1942, the Denver Spider-Man was sentenced to life in prison and entered the Colorado State Prison in Cannon City on November 18, 1942. And probably lived better than he has his whole life. He loved it there. Yeah. It was reported that Theodore was a model prisoner. This would have been living the life of luxury for him. He loved it. He was able to work in the prison's electric shop and library during his incarceration. And have a nice soft bed to sleep in. It was warm all the time. Three meals a day. Warm showers. Yeah. Yeah. Totally taken care of. His life actually improved by becoming a murderer. It did. It absolutely 100% did. Despite being told that he would never grow into adulthood, Theodore, like I said, lived until the ripe age of 84, 11 years older than Philip was allowed to live. He died in the prison hospital on May 16, 1967. He almost served 25 full years for his crime. He is buried at the Mountain Vale Cemetery in Cannon City. His grave is unmarked, but is in row 71C4. This case was referenced in the 1956 book by Earl Stanley Gardner, titled Beware the Curves. It was also the inspiration for an episode of CSI called Stalker, and was depicted in the Simpsons episode called The Ziff Who Came to Dinner. That's quite the range of media portrayals. Right? A novel, CSI, and The Simpsons. <laughs> you know what's crazy when The Simpsons get a hold of it. Yeah. I'll end Theodore's story with a quote from him about the whole ordeal. There is one small part in here that I already quoted, but I am still going to read it as he said it all together. He said, quote, Everything would have been all right, and Phil Peters would have been alive today if he hadn't caught me robbing the icebox. It was him or me. I thought he had gone out, but he was taking a nap. I hit him with the stove shaker when he tried to run for help. I don't know if he recognized me. It was nearly 30 years since he'd seen me last. When it was over, I ran to the attic after I washed and dried the shaker. I was sitting on the trap door when you were pounding on it from below that night you found him. I was in the neighborhood in September 1941 and found the house unlocked and no one home. I went in and stole some food. I was in bad shape. My lungs were giving me a lot of trouble, and I was at the end of my rope. Fall was coming on, and I couldn't face another winter on the road. I had to have a place to stay. I didn't know Mrs. Peters was in the hospital. I found the hole in the closet, climbed through, and slept and slept. Whenever I heard him downstairs, I kept real still. Then I got bolder and used to shadow him from room to room. It was sort of a game. It gave me a thrill. It was the first time in my life I'd had anyone at my mercy, but I didn't want to hurt him. It was miserable hot in the summer, and my feet froze in the dead of winter in that attic. But it was all part of the price I was willing to pay. I can't tell you why I stuck it out. I guess it was mostly because it was a world all my own. I used to go down and look out the windows and watch the postman come by. Nobody's written to me in 25 years. Whenever I saw people on the street, I hated them and would go back to my attic. I wonder if he, after he realized how nice prison was comparatively, if he ever regretted not just going down and confessing or opening the attic door when they were banging on it. Or robbing a bank. Yeah. There's lots of other things you can do to get into prison. Not that I'm telling anyone to go rob a bank, <laughs> but there are a lot of other things that you could do without hurting somebody. Right. But it was a crime of opportunity, right? He didn't plan to do it. No. Mm -hmm. No. Even when he knocked on the door in 1941, that September... He was just going to ask him for some help. Had Philip been home, this story probably wouldn't have happened. Philip probably would have invited him in for dinner, gave him some money. Yeah, and probably let him stay in one of the spare bedrooms or yeah. something like that. Yep. Totally. Yeah, I'm just curious if he ever regretted not turning himself in sooner once he noticed how nice prison was. Yeah, maybe. But he did get to stay in prison for almost 25 years. <laughs> right. So we don't feel sorry for you, <laughs> Theodore. And Theodore is a pain in the butt name to type. Over and over. The Odor. Yeah. Couldn't it have been said that they called him Theo and I could have <laughs> just done that, but no. 
And that is the totally bizarre and unbelievable case of a man who became like a literal spider living in a tiny box of a space, murdering and haunting the occupants of the house, the twisted and filthy dirtbag, Theodore Edward Conies. That is such a creepy case. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. So are you ready to be even more so creeped out? No, I enjoy the feeling of it being a long time ago and people don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, brace yourself then because I am going to be a woman on my word because I told you at the start of the case that Theodore has not been the only person to live in someone's house without them knowing and I'm going to give you some bonus content. This will be brief though. I'll briefly tell you about a few other cases about people doing this. Not ones that involve murder, but are uber creepy regardless. So you're ready. Are you ready now? No, I think I prefer talking about murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a whole new level of creep. In 2012, a woman named Tracy in South Carolina heard some weird noises inside her house. Eventually, she narrowed the sounds to the attic and noticed that nails were beginning to pop out of her bedroom ceiling. What? Tracy's nephew came to help her search the attic and discovered Tracy's ex-boyfriend living there. He was using old coats to keep warm and would lay in a position where he could watch Tracy sleeping in her bed. Why were the nails coming out? It was like a wooden ceiling, like the attic. Must have been an older home. And just from him walking on them? Yeah, from being up there. Oh, so gross. Uh That's when she called her nephew (laughs) to come and help. They had broken up 12 years prior. He left the house smiling, but was later arrested by police. He just kind of smirked at her as they escorted him out of the house. Totally creepy. Yes. And just would watch her sleep. Like, that's been 12 years. Get over it. And I don't know how long he had been up there either. It didn't say that one. I am not going to sleep tonight. (laughs) Well, here's another one for you. (laughs) See, they're really brief that I'm going to just tell you about. Another woman named Amber was also spied on from someone in her attic. In 1997, she moved into an apartment in Washington and noticed that the attic door was locked from the inside. She brushed that off as just being weird but soon could hear footsteps coming from the ceiling during the night. She began to notice things being moved around her apartment and her dog being shut inside a room. One day, she was laying in her bathtub when she heard a noise. She quickly got out and saw the ceiling door to the attic wide open, the one that had always been locked. My heart would stop, (laughs) wouldn't it? And you're like, you're naked. You're in the bath when this is happening. So you already feel so vulnerable. Inside the attic, there were books and a sleeping bag. Unfortunately, the peeping Tom creep had escaped before she got a glimpse of him, and he was never caught by police. But they figured he had been watching her for the last six months. No. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so gross. And now I'm totally freaking out because our attic hatch is in our closet. We have one in our closet, too. <laughs> In 2013, Ohio University students who rented a house together started to notice weird things happening around their house. Food went missing. The cupboard doors would mysteriously be left open. They joked that their house was haunted. But later they discovered a man named Jeremy living in a secret bedroom in the basement of their home. The students were nice enough to let him collect his things before giving him the boot. A secret bedroom in the basement? Mm-hmm. They had to get the superintendent to come and bust it open. Like it wasn't a door that would like open and somehow this guy, I don't know how he was getting in and out of there, but huh. there he was. That's creepy. Mm-hmm. And I just laughed at that one. They were nice enough. Get your things, Jeremy, and go. <laughs> you're done here. Yeah. <laughs> you're not paying rent, so move That's on. That's right. <laughs> and you're eating our food and leaving the cupboard doors open, which is annoying. <sighs> okay, this next one is crazy. In 2013, a man lived underneath the house of a 73-year-old woman named Velma in Washington, D.C. The only reason it was eventually discovered that someone had been living beneath her was because she thought her heating system was on the fritz. A repairman came and discovered that someone had cut the ducts and redirected the heat to beneath the house. No one was arrested, but they figured the person had been living there for about a year without Velma or her dogs even noticing. How did the dogs not notice? I don't know. He'd been there a year. And I think the longer people are there, they get a little more brazen. Well, I'm going to steal her heat too. It got cold under the house. Could you imagine the heating bill trying to heat the underside of your house? No. Outside. No, not in Canada. I don't know how cold Washington gets, but I'm assuming pretty cold there. A man named Joe lived in New York and noticed his food going missing. This part made me laugh because he blamed his girlfriend at first. (laughs) Joe, come on. It reminds me 
reminds me of those Saturday Night Live skits where the girl doesn't order her own food, but she eats some of everybody else's. Right, when you're not looking like the fries. Yeah. I'll just have a side salad and water. <laughs> yeah. So yes, he blamed his girlfriend at first, but when she denied it, he decided to set up a night vision camera in his kitchen. The next day, he couldn't believe his eyes when he saw a woman drop from his ceiling, raid his fridge, and then go back up where she came from. These people are agile, right? The woman was arrested and admitted to living there for two weeks. Oh, So he had caught her early. But two weeks even. Like, it just seems like, oh yeah, that's nothing after hearing these other things. But That's a long time. Two weeks is a long time. Okay, this next one is super creepy. A woman named Michelle worked at a hospital in Washington. One of the valets there named Carlos became obsessed with Michelle. He parked her car for her every day that she came to work. One day, he made his own copy of her house keys. Carlos snuck into Michelle's apartment and hid underneath her bed. That night, when Michelle came home, she was with her boyfriend, a factor that Carlos hadn't expected. During the night, the boyfriend could hear something under the bed. He grabbed a flashlight and shone it under the bed. He saw Carlos staring back at him. (laughs) He's so creeped out. Can you imagine? Like, this is where horror movies get all these ideas from. (laughs) Well, I'm still trying to figure out what hospital has valet services. In Washington. Oh, I gotta go work there. The boyfriend drug Carlos out from under the bed, beat the nuggets out of him with the flashlight, and then waited for the police to show up. Carlos was given three years in prison for his creepy ways. (laughs) And rightfully so. Yep. Because that is creepy. Yeah, right under her bed. All right, one more. This last one happened in 2008 in Japan. Again, a man started to notice that his food was going missing, and this went on for over a year. Finally, the man installed motion sensor cameras inside his house. The first day they were installed, the man received notification on his phone that there was motion detected inside the home. When he looked at the images, he saw a woman standing in his kitchen. He called the police, and upon investigation, they discovered that a 58-year-old woman named Tatsuko had been sleeping on a shelf in a closet inside his home. No way. She had become so familiar with the man's schedule that she freely cooked food, took baths, and went out for walks every single day without the man noticing, and then she would quietly snuggle back in on the closet shelf. How did nobody else see her coming and going out of his house? They might have just thought she lived there. Yeah. And 58. That's another elderly one. This time she's only climbing in a shelf in a closet. It's not up to the attic. And she would be more exposed up there too. Like at least in an attic, you would feel like a little more hidden. Mm -hmm. But she did that for a whole year and was basically like his roommate without him knowing. So I guess the moral of the story today is to always check out those weird noises around your house and search your attic or any small spaces once you notice food mysteriously vanishing around your house. Especially if you don't have teenagers to blame for all your food disappearing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That is one creepy case, Christy. Totally. It creeped me out a little bit. That was a lot of cases. I didn't even look that hard for those cases. Like, I'm sure I could have come up with a lot. I've heard of people squatting in a house when there's nobody there. Right. Or like an abandoned business or, you know, in between renters. There's TV shows on that, like Mm -hmm. the whole rigmarole to get those people kicked out. But this is actually, well, living in your own home. Yeah. You would think you were going crazy Mm -hmm. with all of this stuff, like food going missing, covered doors opened, seeing creepy white hands go around the door. But you can see why people would think their houses are haunted. Mm -hmm. That is so disturbing. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) And that's where I said, I think that this is even more sinister and more frightening than if it was a haunting. Mm Mm-hmm. Hopefully, our listeners won't have too horrible of a night's sleep after listening to this creepy case. Yeah, we wish you some sweet dreams. (laughs) And a good rest of the week. See ya. Bye. Yep, that's how we feel today. (laughs) (laughs) But we're doing what we can. (laughs) I always get halfway home and then I'm like, I forgot to check the back seat before I started to get in the van. Oh, you rookie. Oh, man. (laughs) That actually, are you serious? It actually happens? (laughs) I wish you guys could see Melissa's face right now. And you know what? 
sorry, I don't know how most husbands would treat this, but I would be like, oh, I'm hearing all these things. And my husband would treat me like I'm crazy. Absolutely. Most of them would. It's fine. That's what my husband would say. It's fine. Go back to bed. We don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> exactly. I'm drinking Gatorade. Woohoo! Makes me hyper. I haven't even had a Pepsi yet today. Was born in Pittsburgh? Nope, not Pittsburgh. <laughs> Petersburg. <laughs> I can't even get this right. <laughs> what kind of help are you? I'm trying here. Hold on, I'm going to make notes. He saw a strange man standing at the... Phil... She discovered a grizzly slain... slain. A slain? A slain grizzly slain. Oh my goodness. Joey doesn't share food. Oh, and his name's Joe! <laughs> <laughs> that was a happy coincidence. <laughs> Why is he howling? See ya. See ya. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.